Now introducing the Minor Wisdom Trio! Minor Wisdom! Alright ladies and gentlemen, hey hey hey, uh, got Jonathan Dorf on today, a lot of you know Jonathan uh, from Texas Thespians or TXETA at festivals in the state of Texas. Uh, he is a playwright. Um, he is uh, the the guy with junior plays uh, and just an all-around cool guy and clearly a New Yorker, clearly, um, as most of you who ever talked to him, you know, he just exudes New York, right? And you'll hear it uh, in this pod. So if you've never met Jonathan Dorf, I, I don't know what rock you're living under, but um, he's he's a wonderful human being that has just a great story to tell. Uh, a lot of information that you're going to hear in his story that he talks to me uh, from this interview from a few weeks ago is was news to me. I didn't know a lot of information that he uh, actually talked about. So that was pretty pretty freaking cool to kind of get to know him. I got to warn you, something happened in this interview that has never happened before, and that's like the audio just completely dropped out. Um, I don't know why. Uh, I'll I'll have a little interlude where I come in and, and sort of reintroduce the second part of the chat, but it's whatever, man. I don't know what happened. Technology is crazy. Speaking of crazy, <clears throat> so I am officially uh, self-employed. And like I said last week, I'm overwhelmed by the amount of people reaching out every single day since I've been away from Covenant. Mind you, it's only been a week. Um, I've received emails, phone calls from different directors needing small things all the way to designing a full show and building it. And it's flattering as all get out. And I'm trying so hard to make sure that I'm helping all of the directors that I can and all and ultimately all the students that I can. Uh, I want you to continue to call me. I want you to continue to hire me. I want you to know that I'm making a living doing this. So I'm trying real hard to make the price of my services reasonable for you, but also something that puts food in my kids' mouths and pays my bills. And so uh, I don't mean to insult you if you think that maybe the price is too high or maybe I don't I don't really know what I'm supposed to be charging uh, as far as the educational entity. I know what day rates are and I know all that kind of stuff, but that's not typically what you charge an educational entity. So, you know, talk to me about if you end up hiring me for something, talk to me about the price. If I send you an invoice for something, don't be afraid to be like, hey, we can't afford that, and we can negotiate and figure some stuff out. So I am my own person. I'm not, you know, I don't have contracts right now. I will because I'm going to need to. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's chat, man. I, I'm so happy with how this has turned out thus far. Um, and I know that it's musical season or musical season starting up, gearing up, and a lot of musicals happen in January. I went to uh, three this past week. I went to see uh, two for Tommy Toon judging. I'm not going to name what those are. Uh, and one of them was insane in a good way. Uh, the other one was a very good show, but one of them was just like just crazy insane. And again, not going to name the two. Uh, I did go see Chicago at Travis High School. It is a Tommy Toon uh, show, but I was not 
uh, there to adjudicate. I was there to see the seniors there were my freshmen when I was at Travis High School. So I was there to see some of those kids and see their final musical at Travis High School. And it was really good. They did Chicago. Seems like everybody and their mom's doing Chicago. But uh, yeah, it was really, really fun. Um, while I was there, uh, a kid came up to me, this kid from uh, Marshall High School, and was like, hey, I listen to your podcast. Just knew who I was. And uh, I told the kid, I was like, you're not my demographic, but I appreciate you listening. Um, and I said, if you want to be a theater teacher, it's the perfect podcast to listen to. But um, it, it was just kind of like, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. It, again, part of the overwhelming element of things. Um, speaking of students, so I judged a lot. I judged, I think, 50 things, uh, IEs, uh, this, this past week. Uh, between, I think I did audio design, sound design, I did some playwriting, and I did some film. And the 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 thing I need to take out of all that that I would say to teachers to tell their students is take, first of all, teachers, if you're not checking their work, you're doing them a disservice. That's number one. Number two, what I originally wanted to say was that the kids need to take more pride in what they're doing. Um, and I don't think they truly understand what that means. And I think it's our responsibility to teach them what pride is, what it means when you put your name on a product and you represent that product. So, for instance, um, some of the audio ones, right? Part of the audio uh, project, the IE, was to find some research, right? Do some research. One audio design, sound design, i.e. for me that I had did research. Um, the playwriting play, the plays had extreme typographical errors. I don't know grammar. Plus you can't really grade grammar in a play because what if that, that character is, you know, a bunch of you say, oh, I did it good. That's not proper grammar, right? But that's how a lot of people talk. So I did it well, right? So I don't, uh, when I was grading the plays or, or adjudicating the plays, I wasn't looking at grammar so much, partially because I'm not the best person at grammar. I like to think I'm better than average, but I'm not perfect. But what I was looking at are spelling errors. There were tons of spelling errors and like just uh, uh, formatting errors and all kinds of stuff that were in those plays that are easily fixable like easily fixable and it goes a long way to being a better play it still may not be a good play but it's going to present better right you you know it's it's like i watch a lot of uh food network and and cooking shows and great british great british baking show one of the best shows on tv uh their presentation almost makes things sometimes taste better or just good. Um, and so presentation is a big deal. And so, you know, teach your kids to just have more pride in their work so that, um, you know, it, 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 it presents better. Right. Um, the last thing that I want to talk about before we get to Jonathan Dorf, uh, is that Texas Thespians is in San Antonio as I record this right now, and I'm going to be there next week. I'm going to be there Tuesday through Saturday, maybe Sunday. I might stay till Sunday. We'll see. But, um, Tuesday through Saturday, I'll be there. Uh, and I can't tell you how excited. I like, I was so bummed 
because originally I wasn't going. I wasn't going because uh, Covenant's not going, and I was working for Covenant. And why would they go, or why would they, you know, why would I go if they're not going? And so then when I decided to leave, I was like, well, I'm going to go to Thespians. And then my wife's job said, well, we need your wife to travel. That's the one weekend uh, in this six month period that we need her to travel. And so I was real, real bummed that I wasn't going to get to go because I knew San Antonio wasn't a possibility. Um, and so then we figured out that, uh, my mother-in-law is going to come in town, watch the kids, watch the dogs, whatever, whatever. And, uh, I told Amy, I said, Hey, can I please come? This is last minute, way last minute, please come Thursday through Saturday. And Amy Jordan is like, she'll work with anybody. She will. <laughs> I don't, I don't know why she does it, but, um, you know, she says, I'll figure something out. And so she did. And then I get a, a text that asked if I can uh, come in Tuesday, right? I was like, I'm unemployed. I can come in Monday uh, if you want. But anyway, so I'll be there Tuesday. I'm doing some stuff Tuesday up there. I'm going to help out Wednesday with the juniors a little bit uh, where I can. And uh, Saturday, I'm going to teach a workshop. Uh, so it went from not going at all to being very busy at least three of the three of the five days that I'm there. So I'm real excited. Uh, I'm excited to see people. Um, I'm excited to see a ton of people. I just love being in that environment. And I'm excited to see some of my students from Cooper, from Travis, uh, from Dulles, um, uh, or I guess I don't know too many from Dulles now, but I'm excited to see people, man. It's going to be, it's going to be so fun. So, uh, stop me in the, in, in the, the Gaylord if you will, maybe I'll be by the cupcake dispenser, um, grabbing a cupcake, although they'll probably be all gone by the time like Thursday rolls around. Cause all the kids will be there Wednesday grabbing them, but I'm super excited. I don't think I've said that and you can hear it in my voice. So yeah, there's that. And then, uh, right now I'll just be honest. I don't have anything lined up for next weekend. Um, I'm hoping to, as far as a podcast is concerned, I'm hoping to grab a few things at thespians, um, I would love to, if you are a listener of this podcast and you either A, want to be on or B, know some people that want to be on that'll be in Grapevine, um, hit me up, tell me, hey, grab this person or uh, reach out to this person because I will interview them. I'm going to bring my gear. So uh, let me know and I would be happy, happy to have you on. Uh, join my Patreon, buy a shirt. It would really, now that I need to feed my children, please buy a shirt. Now it's important that uh, people buy shirts. Before it was just to pay like the annual fee of having this podcast. Now I really need you to buy a shirt because like <laughs> my kids eat a lot. So um, enjoy this interview with Jonathan Dorf. Again, I apologize for some of the technical difficulties, if you will. Uh, but it's a really, it is a longer one, but it's a really good one. And you learn a lot about a guy that you see all the time uh, at these conventions and festivals and a guy that's like, beyond helpful with anything he can do uh, within his control to help you get uh, a play or uh, just give you advice um, about kind of what's out there. He's also a useful tool to have for your students to talk to. So, um, but anyway, enjoy this. I'm glad that I had him on. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Uh, but again, we're in episode like 200 or something. So, have a great week. Enjoyed Thespians. If you went to San Antonio, I hope you enjoyed Thespians, and I hope you're listening to this on the way home. Bobby, I'm looking forward to seeing you, big boy. I got started as a playwright when I was in high school, 
And I had, at that point, I was actually the, the school newspaper editor. We took a, a school newspaper that uh, had fallen on sort of tougher times, and uh, we resuscitated it a bit. And in the meantime, I was writing, uh, in addition to that sort of work, I was doing poetry, I was doing short stories, I was writing songs. Uh, there was a teacher, in fact, a particular teacher, a guy named Tom Williams, who was my mentor. And he was both the newspaper editor and the literary magazine editor. And I ended up editing, the, or not the editor, I guess he was the, uh, the sponsor, and I, I was the editor. Um, but um, you know, so Tom kind of created a little community of creativity uh, around him. And uh, actually, I was probably the only student to carve out my own office. We actually had them come in and drywall it. And I had a back office in the newsroom. But at one point, Tom said to me, he said, you've done everything else. Why don't you write a play? And Tom had, uh, I think he had gone to Villanova, which actually has a pretty strong uh, theater program in the Philadelphia suburbs. And uh, he had written some plays. And I think he'd even written maybe some kind of an opera. And so junior year, uh, I had been reading a lot of Eugene O'Neill. Neil, because I think junior year was American lit, and um, I had sort of gotten on an O'Neill kick. So I wrote a play called The Storm, which was incredibly derivative, but uh, Tom managed to sort of strong arm uh, one of the students. There was a, uh, a student drama festival at the end of the year, and he strong armed one of the student directors into choosing my play. And so they put it up. And, and from that moment, um, you know, the play was, it was sort of a, a bad Iceman cometh ripoff when I look at it now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was amazing to like sit in that dark theater and watch people watching your show and to be watching your show yourself. And, and from there, I enjoyed it so much that I decided to uh, write a play that was possibly worse the next year. Um, and it was that one. And I'm trying to remember the, oh, it was called Death Without Parole. And it was basically a no exit ripoff. I had gotten into reading The Absurdist at that point. And, and so this was my, uh, my ode to Sartre with uh, probably a little bit of UNESCO kind of seasoned in for good measure. And I was actually in that play. And all of those people who witnessed that moment uh, have been, uh, were forced to sign NDAs. <laughs> No, it really wasn't that bad. It, it, acting was not my thing, uh, but I've been told, you know, I've had friends who have tried to convince me to do some voice work or something. Uh, I don't mind doing a reading, but I think the stress of acting is, is definitely not something that I wanted to take on. That's a whole other animal. But um, at that point, I was definitely hooked. And I had been working on some other projects when I was in high school, and I was, I was writing a lot of things at that point. I guess the beast had sort of been unleashed. And when I went to Harvard, the nice thing about Harvard, and I think it's changed, but at the time, there was no real organized theater department. And as amazing as it can be to go to a school with a strong theater department, the problem can be, especially as an undergrad, and if the program is, we'll say, a strong graduate program, is that grad program uh, or the, that organized theater program can actually choke off a lot of the space. And, and sort of suck up a lot of the people. And so the nice thing at Harvard without a theater program is basically nobody was telling you no. 
And so I think I mounted something like 14 of my shows while I was there. And we had, it was kind of a free-for-all. There was actually a lot of theater. We had something called common casting at the beginning of each semester where almost all the shows auditioned at once. So in the fall, that might be 25 different plays auditioning in the spring. Sometimes it was closer to 40. And you would basically, it would almost be like a draft, except sometimes, you know, the, the super in-demand actors would end up, uh, you know, being on six or seven cast lists. And then they had to decide uh, which ones they were going to do. But, uh, you know, around my era at Harvard, uh, had like Larry O'Keefe and Nell Benjamin, who went on to great writing fame as the authors of, of Legally Blonde, and Nell wrote the lyrics for uh, for Mean Girls, and uh, she's an absolutely lovely person, and, and was a really great actress, too. Uh, and there were a number of other really good folks. I actually overlapped with Matt Damon, who I saw do Burn This uh, in the like Winthrop House common room. We had all these weird spaces, uh, libraries, and uh, they even used the Adams House swimming pool. And uh, I was in the, the Adams House basement space where uh, Bob Brewstein, who was, was one of my um, sort of academic mentors uh you know bob founded the american repertory theater before that he founded the l rep uh, came to the show in this this space you would do shows i mean there would be like these giant poles in the middle of the audience area and you had to kind of work around it uh and i wrote some pretty weird stuff at that point uh, but i i got to study playwriting with uh william alfred who wrote a gorgeous play called hogan's goat uh, which is written entirely in blank verse and i also got to study with adrian kennedy and uh but bill was really my first sort of serious playwriting so right about here is when i completely lost audio we didn't lose a connection just the audio dropped and i don't really know what the reason was hasn't happened since never happened before but it happened here so uh, i apologize for not only the audio uh, quality is going to change but also the, uh, the there might be a little bit of repetition on what jonathan was saying so apologies for that not a perfect science not a perfect world but continue to listen to uh the rest of my chat with jonathan dorf so when I got to Harvard, one of the things that is amazing about Harvard is, at least at the time, uh, and I do believe it's changed somewhat, there was no theater department per se. And as lovely as theater departments can be, and obviously when I went to UCLA for grad school, there was a very strong one, uh, but they do tend to uh, choke off the available space and people. And so if you want to do something outside of the department, sometimes that can be really challenging. So at Harvard, there was none of that. And it meant that it was this amazing free-for-all. Uh, Harvard has these residential houses. So in addition to the, uh, the Loeb Drama Center, which was where the American Repertory Theater was in residence, and we had a couple main stage slots there, and then uh, we controlled the Loeb Experimental Theater. Uh, there was also the Agassiz Theater, and then all these house spaces. And so I uh, produced something like 14 different shows of mine when I was at Harvard, and I had spaces, everything from the freshman Union uh, to the Loeb Experimental Theater several times to the Cronauer uh, space in Adams House, which was basically a basement with uh, 30-some seats and giant columns in the way of things, and it was also uh, hot. 
uh, as an inferno in there sometimes. Uh, and the Mather House TV room, which was basically a, a giant room with a large television in it that, that we put up theater spaces in there. And, and we actually, the houses had their own equipment and uh, it was a really exciting time. And, uh, you know, it all started with something called common casting. And there would be anywhere from maybe 25 plays in the fall to 40 shows in the spring. And everybody was auditioning at once. And you had lots of super in-demand actors who would, you know, be asked to be in five or six shows. And, and I actually did want to see someone turn around and be the lead in one play one weekend. And then pretty much the next weekend, she was a lead in another play. She was. She did Lion in Winter, and I forget what the other one was. Maybe it was like Top Girls or something. But it was. It was pretty astounding what people could do. I don't know how they were managing to do all their classes, but <laughs> sometimes I think we we majored in extracurriculars. And uh, I was on the we called it the HRDC, the Harvard Radcliffe Dramatic Club uh, board, for a couple of years. I was the treasurer. And I got to actually supervise money. And it's a wonder I didn't run off to the Caribbean on a great vacation. Uh, but it was really fun times. And uh, I overlapped with some amazing people like Nell Benjamin and Larry O'Keefe, uh, both of whom were performers, uh, but were also writing and have gone on to write Legally Blonde. And Larry wrote Bat Boy. And Nell was the, uh, the lyricist for Mean Girls. And Matt Damon was there and, and did a show in the Winthrop House, I think, Junior Common Room. He did uh, Lanford Wilson's Burn This playing Pale. And he actually was really, really good. And uh, funny story, apropos of nothing, I actually knew Matt in school because he was dating the girl who lived directly above me. Uh, in Mather House for quite a while. Uh, though he ended up uh, not staying with her forever, but uh, he was a super nice guy and super talented. Uh, and so from there, um, I, I actually thought I was going to be a lawyer, though, still when I got to Harvard. And uh, for that, that sort of first semester, uh, probably harbored those ambitions. But my uh, cousin, Michael, who is actually a, a law professor at Cornell now, he was in his final year of law school, and I got to see Harvard's uh, famous mock trial, the moot court. And I saw it, and I said, this was amazing, and Michael won everything in sight. And I said, I do not want to be a lawyer. And so that kind of propelled me into writing more theater. Uh, I was also doing some screenwriting at the time, and I had a couple near misses. Uh, nothing quite landed uh, in the screenwriting world, but I, I do enjoy that. And I've actually in, in later life gone on and made some shorts. Uh, but when I graduated, I, uh, my plan was to, uh, to move to LA. And uh, my parents said, if you wait, I, probably about six months, uh, I could have my grandparents car. And in the meantime, I got bored and I, uh, I wrote three schools and I offered to do free playwriting workshop and one of them completely ignored me. The other uh, brought me in to do a guest lecture, which was really fun. And the other one, uh, the dean of the faculty called and started talking about a job. Apparently they had never had a dedicated drama teacher before productions were directed by the English department. And so uh, I went in and I met with the headmaster who had Harvard Magazine sitting on his coffee table. And it turned out he had gone to Harvard for his PhD and had actually lived in the same residential house um, years earlier than I did, uh, but it was the same one. We were both Matherites. 
And uh, I taught for, I did sort of a two week workshop and then I was hired and I was there for six years, which was probably two years too long because I had always uh, harbored intentions of going to graduate school. And so I had my contract for the seventh year, but I was also the head varsity tennis coach, which was super, super stressful. And at that point, by May, I wasn't eating well. I had had enough. So I went in, there was a new headmaster, and I just went in and I said, I can't do this anymore. And uh, he let me out of my contract for the next year. And I spent a year freelancing and applying to graduate schools. And I was fortunate uh, because at that point I had... I had started to write plays for young people because what happened is I would be at Haverford, which is where I was teaching, and I would pick a show and then I would have some more people audition. I thought, well, you know, I I don't want to just turn them away. So I would write, we'll say, a curtain raiser for that. And so I started to do that on a number of occasions. And so there are some of my plays which are still kicking around, which have their roots in the Haverford days. I ended up during my freelance year getting commissioned to write a couple of touring shows for Philadelphia's Walnut Street Theater, which is a huge um, theater company. And they have this great education department that tours uh, two shows with their Haas fellows or the Haas acting fellows. So you basically cast a four. So uh, there's a play that's at Youth Plays called From Shakespeare with Love with a question mark. And I actually wrote that show for The Walnut as a four-person play, but obviously it has a larger cast than that. And and in the school world, one can kind of unpack that. Um, Simultaneously, I also got commissions and, and spent three summers at Choate Rosemary Hall Summer Arts Conservatory. And Choate is, it's actually where Edward Albee went to school. And I think uh, Glenn Close, maybe, and Mike Douglas. It has a, and JFK. So it has a very distinguished uh, group of alumni. And they had an IMP designed auditorium or, or sort of performing arts center, which was beautiful. But when it rained, you would see all the buckets <laughs> come out because as gorgeous as it was, it had plenty of leaks. And so each summer for them, I was commissioned to write a play. And a couple of those, in in fact, including one of my favorites and the one that got me into vignette style playwriting, which is a lot of what I do now, um, came out of that period. And and the one that that sort of started it all is Dear Chuck. And that was originally a commission for uh, Choate Rosemary Hall. And I had students who were anywhere from the age of 10 to 18. So I kind of had to write a play that would appeal to everybody. And I think there were it was either 29 or 31 people. It was a lot. And at the time, it kind of blew my brain out because I'm thinking, you know, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do with all these people? And, and how am I going to sort of keep them all through the show? And that was where the idea of writing these vignettes um, came to me because it was the only way I think that that show was going to work. And uh, it was sort of a style that I really enjoyed. And it's, it's not the only one that I've, I've used since then, because I've certainly written a lot of other plays that weren't in that vignette style, but I really enjoy it um, for one acts. Uh, at that point, I'd been writing my grad school applications and I, I got into UCLA, I got into USC. I really, I had lived on the East Coast all my life because I'd grown up in the Philadelphia area and I was, I actually got into Temple Film School and they, they offered me, it was one film school I applied to and Temple uh, University in Philly has a really good film school, I think kind of known for their documentary work and their indie work. 
and I got, I guess it was like the, the presidential fellowship or, you know, it was, it was whatever their biggest money thing was. And at the time, because this is 2000, um, it was a lot of money. Uh, I was basically getting, I would be getting paid to go to school and I turned it down and, and some part of me um, regrets that. And then a big part of me doesn't because uh, I ended up at UCLA and, and on the West Coast, where I've lived ever since. And, and that was a great experience, too, in a lot of ways. I got to study with Leon Katz, who uh, was sometimes called the father of American dramaturgy. Leon had been co-chair of dramaturgy at Yale, and he worked on Angels in America and was just a brilliant, brilliant man. He lived into his um, mid-late 90s and uh, was sharp as, a, you know, as anything right up until the end. And, and learned so much from him just in terms of how to approach plays and, and sort of learning how to meet a play uh, where it exists rather than trying to impose sort of my idea of what a play should be like on that play, which I think has been super useful in working with young writers uh, or just working with other writers. Uh, but UCLA obviously forced me to, to come up with some, some output, but I was still kind of, at that point, I had gotten into writing more plays for young people because I had sort of discovered, you know, it's something that when you go to college, you really don't know that it exists unless you were in a thespian program uh, growing up. And I wasn't, we didn't have that in my, my high school. Uh, and now, uh, you know, I go back when I visit my parents at Thanksgiving, I usually go to Pennsylvania thespians and, and teach workshops, but, but it's something that growing up, it was a whole world that I just didn't know existed. And, and so now it's like, there's this amazing world of all this high school theater going on and junior high theater and, and all these people doing plays. And obviously in Texas, uh, it's a huge thing with UIL, but, but, you know, people really, uh, you know, being pretty adventurous as far as we'll say what a middle school will tackle. And, um, and so that's been exciting, but, uh, I think for me then, so I graduated from UCLA in, in 2002, and uh, I got involved with the Alliance of Los Angeles Playwrights, which is a service and support organization for playwrights in, in Los Angeles. But at that point, especially with the place for young people, I discovered that there were these publishers out there and that maybe I should check this thing out. And um, so I sent, a, you know, I had a couple pieces Early with Eldridge, which I've, I've since actually reacquired and brought back to youth plays, that was, um, in fact, it was from Shakespeare with Love and, uh, and Dear Chuck. And um, I had some stuff with Brooklyn Publishers, and then I discovered play scripts. And at the time, and, and the first piece that I had with them was probably Aftermath in, I want to say it was 2005. I kind of got in at the right moment. Uh, you know, play scripts really, I think, changed the game in terms of, you know, having this really great website with long samples that you could read and, you know, a lot of the legacy publishers, you know, at the time, French or, or Baker's or, or Dramatist Play Service, uh, or dramatic, they were sort of behind in that. And, and the Rand brothers really, I think, got in on the ground floor of technology. And, and I was, uh, you know, I mean, there's a certain amount of luck. I think there's luck that's involved in, in all of this. Um, and I will, I will digress 
um, to tell a story of, of luck. Uh, when I got out to LA, um, I ended up, I was in, I don't know if you remember, there were these listservs that existed. They were kind of like the early, almost like bulletin boards, message boards, uh, like, so, like a, a primitive version of them. And uh, there was this guy who ran, it was more of a screenwriting listserv. He, he had a book about screenwriting and I got in on this and, and maybe because I was the only playwright he knew. Uh, but he referred me to the people at the writer's store and they hired me to write this website called playwriting101.com. They own the domain. And then they introduced me to the people at Final Draft, uh, you know, the, the sort of preeminent screenwriting software. And Final Draft was working on this thing called Ask the Expert. And, um, you know, it was basically part of the software and they had these almost uh, like kind of almost like a PowerPoint where somebody who was particularly well-versed in the craft uh, and they had screenwriting and Sid Field did the screenwriting one. And I think Larry Kramer maybe did television, but I can't quite remember. And then I did playwriting um, and it was sort of right place, right time. And, and it was really helpful, uh, not necessarily from a playwriting standpoint, but, but kind of from my teaching, playwriting and teaching. And, and so shortly after that, uh, you know, I got that up and, and people would start to find me online. So I got this email um, one day from um, these folks. And at first there was this sort of the there was that scam going around um, online. It was sort of associated, kind of called the Nigerian scam, where you would get this email and they would say, you know, so-and-so, the late so-and-so has died and they have $50 million. And if you give me all of your banking information, you can get a cut. Uh, and I actually know somebody who fell for that but uh, and lost $1,000. But I got this email and, and I kind of thought it was that, but it was actually legit. And it was from the... Um, I think it was a natural uh, national cultural foundation of Barbados and they had found me online and they wanted me to come down as, as part of the United States cultural envoy program. So it's basically they requested of the U S embassy. And so for a month in 2008, I had state department health insurance and I was in Barbados. I was tasked with raising the level of writing on the island in Barbados is this, you know, beautiful island of, at the time, it was about 300,000 people, former British colony in the Caribbean. And uh, I got to stay at a nice hotel and I would teach uh, adult classes and I lectured at the University of the West Indies. Uh, and I got to judge the national uh, arts competition. And, and I was there when Obama won his first term and they have a, a big party at the US ambassador's residence. And so this is majority black country. And there I am at this party um, watching someone who looks like them win the presidency of the United States, uh, which was a really amazing moment. I also got to see the Phillies win the World Series watching on this tiny Spanish language uh, ESPN <laughs> television. Uh, and then after that, people found me and they invited me to Singapore to teach. And I went to Singapore three different times. And this was all kind of the luck of like meeting one person and, and you never know how that's going to go. But, but so. said ultimately never land back at the original timeline, but this time I kind of did. So, so they were really taking off. And, and so 
Um, you know, I wrote a play about bullying called Thank You for Flushing My Head in the Toilet and Other Rarely Used Expressions, um, which got, it, it's gotten over 300 productions. Uh, but that play was sort of 2008, 2009. And then the one that, that really sort of, um, I guess, put me on the map and, and continues to keep me on the map is 4AM. Uh, and 4AM just had its, it just booked its 600th production. And, and, you know, it's this play about a group of teens who are awake in the middle of the night at, at 4 a.m. And um, that resonated with people. Uh, and I eventually actually wrote a, a sort of standalone sequel to it called The Magic Hour, which takes these same characters and um, picks up with them a year later. Uh, and, and it's a, a couple of plays that I'm very proud of. Uh, and in fact, 4 a.m., I, I worked with uh, Allison Wood, uh, composer, lyricist, and we, we actually turned it into a rock pop musical. And so uh, when I signed the contract with PlayScripts, I kept the rights for a musical version. So that version is at Youth Plays, and then the other two are PlayScripts. And then I continued to write uh, you know, other plays, uh, largely for, for PlayScripts, uh, you know, had Harry's Hotter Twilight, but then at a certain point, um, probably circa 2010, uh, I was in a room, you know, chatting with uh, Matt Buchanan, who was a, a longtime friend that I had gone to Harvard with, who um, has a Texas connection because he uh, had his MFA in children's playwriting, uh, you know, from UT Austin studying, uh, you know, with Susan Zeter. And, and then Ed Shockley, who was a Philly-based playwright uh, with whom I had run the Philadelphia Dramata Center. And so I found this URL youthplays.com because we were looking for a way to amplify our work for young people. And I was like, this is a great URL. Uh, at that point, you know, we started and it was just Matt did a very rudimentary website. Uh, and, and he started, uh, you know, we, we put all our plays that were for young people up there. And, and so for probably the first year, year and a half, it was just the three of us. And it was, uh, you know, our way of saying, hey, we're here. Uh, because it was starting, I think that the field of young people, especially with play scripts, more people started to discover it. And so there are more writers, I think, writing in that world uh, than there were. Uh, at a certain point, we started taking on some other people and then more and more other people. Uh, because it, you felt like, you know, initially when I, I went to some conferences and we didn't have that much stuff because we had our stuff and, and we had a few other things. And, and so there was this kind of race to reach critical mass and, and to have enough shows so that we had viable options for people that if this wasn't your thing, maybe this thing over here would be your thing. Uh, and, and then, you know, gradually it just kind of uh, snowballed to the point where we're, we're actually closing in on our 600th play. Um, and, and we, we take, uh, you know, a lot fewer shows at this point than we, you know, we have to be really picky, um, you know, which, which we always tried to be. And that was one of the nice things I felt like about our company is that we had all people who were, you know, we had a lot of MFAs, uh, you know, people who felt comfortable doing dramaturgy. Uh, most, most publishers, they either take it or they don't. And I have friends at other companies and they're like, that's, that's our thing. We just, we either say yes or we say no. And, and we, we are trying to be better at just doing that because dramaturgy is so much work, but um, we will take a play um, 
and, and, you know, give notes. In fact, a great example of that is, um, you know, play like Little Red. Uh, Little Red is this amazing, uh, you know, Latinx punk rock musical. And, you know, we, we liked it. We thought it was really great, but we, we sent some notes and they worked on it and came back and we're like, this is even more great now. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, it won the AATE Distinguished Play Award. And, and so, um, you know, that's the kind of thing we, we aim for. Unfortunately, Ed had a stroke. It's probably been eight or nine years ago. And, and so really, I, I, when I go back to Philadelphia, I meet with him. We, we always go. We have our Indian buffet places that we like. And uh, we go there. One of them closed during the pandemic. We were very sad. So we had to find a new Indian buffet restaurant. And there aren't as many as, uh, you know, around the University of Pennsylvania, which is where we would go, as, as I thought there were. Um, and, and then Matt sadly passed away, I think, in 2018. And, uh, and that was a big blow. So, I mean, we have, you know, we have different people formatting and proofing and reading, uh, but, but it is kind of uh, me as the, the last man standing of the founders, um, which has been challenging because I would like to write more. And uh, I'm, I'm still, you know, one of the things that is funny because you, you sort of mentioned to me, like I'm the guy with the scripts. Um, and, and sometimes kids will come up to me at, we'll say, Thespian Festival, and they'll say something like, you write plays too? And it's like they have no idea that I, I used to write all these plays. And I, so I, I want to go back to that. I mean, it's not that I'm not writing. I, I absolutely am. And, uh, you know, like currently, the sort of latest couple things that are, are soon to arrive or are arriving. Uh, I have a new play called The Throne Room, which is a play set entirely in bathrooms. And, um, you know, or I guess it is all in bathrooms or about bathrooms. And, uh, but it's not as, it's, you know, it's not like people think, I mean, that could, you know, there's a lot of, like, it's just sort of life happens in bathrooms. There's studies that say that we actually spend over a year of our lives in the bathroom. And so, you know, if you spend that much time in the bathroom, things happen. Um, so it's kind of a trippy little play. It's a vignette style piece. Originally, when I created it, and we had the first production at a school in, uh, in California, in the sort of LA area, and it was a longer iteration. It was probably 65, 70 minutes. But I feel like the play wants to live in that 40 to 50 range. So my goal is to, um, it's probably going to be closer to 50. I had a reading. I did a lot of cuts. Um, but I think they were all cuts that I felt I could live with. I think a lot of them made the play better, as often happens. Um, but, but I think I'm going to have probably a few scenes that will be optional so that if you need to be under 40, you can be. That's the goal. Uh, and then Youth Plays is putting out a new collection. Um, we collaborated with uh, University of Central Florida and um, what originally was Orlando Repertory. And I believe they're now Orlando Family Theater. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure on the name, um, but a collection of teen mental health plays. They're plays not written by teens, they're written by some amazing uh, professional writers uh, from all over the country, uh, but, but for teens. And so um, I wrote a play uh, for that collection um, called Phoneless. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a... a magical mystery world where everybody wakes up and and their phones are all gone and the phones have actually basically their, their gadgets have run away 
like they are sentient and and they have left the people. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the search to find them and then to find some balance uh, in how we interact with them. Uh, but there's a lot of really interesting uh, pieces uh, in that collection because I think that mental health um, is, is obviously a huge thing. I mean, even now in these, these current days, uh, you know, because we're, we're talking, uh, you know, in the midst of the attack on, uh, you know, innocent Israelis and, and, and you know, innocent Palestinians are, are also on the crossfire and it's a very stressful time for everyone. And uh, so I think mental health more than ever is important. And, and the collection is going to be uh, called Pieces of Mind, uh, Pieces, P-I-E, uh, C-E-S, but also a play on Peace of Mind. So, um, you know, working on that, but I'm also working on a superhero play, and I have probably five or six plays behind those that I'm I'm ready to write. So it's it's just how can I find that time? And I think it's it's getting more people involved on the youth play side with tasks that don't necessarily require my attention, because it's easy uh, to allow that to take up a lot of my time, and and because I'm sort of obsessive about quality control. Uh, you know, to want to have my fingers in every pie and I just can't uh, because I'm happier when I'm writing. And so I, I've, I'm, I had a, a great lunch with a, a dear friend, uh, Valina Hazu-Houston, who uh, we publish and uh, teaches uh, playwriting uh, at University of Southern California and, and wrote a, a wonderful play called T uh, and in a whole bunch of other plays, we publish a play called Hula Heart of hers and the Matsuyama Mirror. And then um, we have a 10 minute play of hers in our uh, All of uh, Us collection, which is our BIPOC collection. And, uh, you know, Valina and I were talking about work-life balance and it's so important or, or, or in this case for me, it's sort of work-work balance, <laughs> uh, but, but writing versus sort of the other stuff you do. And I also do a lot of, of, of script consulting for other writers. Um, you know, which is one of those things that writing playwriting101.com and the final draft thing have um, allowed me to do. So I've, I've been fortunate. I've consulted for, um, you know, playwrights and screenwriters all over the country and even, you know, worked with the Blue Man Group, um, you know, doing consulting. So, so that's been a fun gig, uh, but it's still not, uh, you know, it keeps you from writing. <laughs> So I wrote down quite a few questions. The first thing that popped out to me was almost right at the top when you said, uh, as a junior, you read Eugene O'Neill. Um, uh, and I wasn't introduced to Eugene O'Neill. Well, I was introduced to him in high school, but we didn't really read anything about him until, or read his plays until college. That stuff is really difficult. Did you, I mean, did you struggle with content that was a little, um, different, if you will. That's kind of an elementary way of explaining Eugene O'Neill, but uh, did you, or was that something that just kind of came to you and you understood almost right away? Well, uh, you know, one of the advantages, uh, my father was a librarian. <laughs> and so I was the kid, We, you know, when I was, I guess, let's see, I was 10, we did this cross-country trip and I would, you know, sit on the back seat of the car and um, like we would have to stop because I had run through all the books that we brought. And so we would have to, to restock. And so uh, I was always very fortunate that, uh, you know, reading, writing stuff, I always, uh, you know, I read at a, a level that was 
a little beyond uh, my my age. Uh, I mean, O'Neill is is I mean, there's no getting around it. O'Neill is a bit of a slog. Uh, you know, it's like stage directions for days. <laughs> Uh, but I was working on, I, as I recall, like we each had to do sort of a report on some notable writer, you know, kind of a, uh, it wasn't like, a, it was, I don't want to call it a report, it wasn't like the sort of just life of Eugene O'Neill, but like you had to dive into their work. And, um, you know, so I probably read Long Day's Journey and I read Iceman Cometh and, um, I feel like I read, you know, at some point I read Yui uh, and I saw uh, Ah Wilderness. And we had some great theaters around and my parents had lots of theater subscriptions. So I was, you know, I fell asleep on Broadway when I was probably five years old. So I was really blessed. You know, Philly was not that far from New York and we could go up and do that. I, I saw, you know, Dracula, I saw Greece, and then I saw some Shakespeare that I'm sure was completely over my head as a, you know, a young child at that point. <laughs> I feel like it was one of the, the history plays, like one of the Henrys. But uh, so, so O'Neill was, I mean, he was certainly dense. And obviously, you know, when I came back to him in college, I'm sure I got a lot more out of it. But uh, I was able to, uh, to kind of work my way through uh, you know, and then I went into, obviously, uh, you know, O'Neill was, was sort of a hardcore kind of naturalism. And, and Long Day's Journey is so interesting because it's, um, you know, it's, it's an autobiographical play, except for the fact that he switches out his name with the name of his dead brother, which is a really interesting and, and dark choice. Uh, but, but from there, I kind of jumped over to the absurdists who were almost like the polar opposite because you've got all this, this sort of naturalistic stuff. And now you've got all this, you know, I'm reading the bald soprano and, and, and things like that, that are, are completely the opposite. And, and I mean, obviously kind of part of the point of UNESCO was to write stuff that, that almost sounded like nonsense. <laughs> and he was very good at it. So the, you know, you mentioned <clears throat> going to be able to see plays. Was there a specific play when you were younger that really smacked you in the face? You know, that's a good question. I mean, I saw a lot of things. And, and uh, you know, when you're that young, you don't necessarily remember the specifics in the way that I did. I mean, for me... The, the play that really sort of smacked me was a little later. It was when I was teaching at Haverford, but I was really, I mean, I'd just gotten out of undergrad at that point. I mean, I started teaching um, when I was, I was 22. I was barely older than some of the kids I was teaching. And uh, Angels of America, uh, Angels in America went on the, uh, you know, the national tour. And it came to uh, the Annenberg center, which was uh, near University of Pennsylvania. And, and so I took, um, I went with a few other faculty members and organized a group and we had a few of our sort of students who I thought could handle it because obviously the subject matter is, is fairly edgy, um, you know, and so everybody knew what they were getting into. And it was also a different time and we were at private schools. So, uh, you know, and it was also sort of the, right. even though we were somewhat conservative, but, but like probably, you know, private schools, but still it was a relatively liberal Northeast. But Angels blew my mind um, because it, it sort of expanded the possibilities of what theater could be and what theater could do. 
and to have, you know, like an angel come through the ceiling. And, um, you know, in a way, it's, it is kind of a vignette style piece. Like it is a fairly fast paced thing. Uh, but to have kind of, uh, you know, the magic, uh, you know, because you have characters, you know, you have these historical characters. Uh, you have uh, who were, were sort of, you know, I mean, embellished somewhat, but but still. Uh, then you have these fictional characters, and then you have these absolutely fantastical characters. And to have them all merged, I mean, I think this play, and I remember, you know, because we saw it all in one day. We went, you know, we saw the first part in the afternoon, and then we went for dinner uh, to Zocalo, this Mexican restaurant nearby. And then we went back, and in that, you know, six-some hours that we were in the theater, I looked at my watch exactly one time. Like that's when you know that a play is, is successful um, because you're just uh, in, in, you know, absolutely riveted by what they were doing. Um, you know, also at the sort of similar time, uh, Rent, you know, and, and Rent kind of, I mean, we'd had Jesus Christ Superstar, but there was something about Rent that was different. Uh, and you really felt like you were at a rock concert. And I saw Rent uh, six times. I saw it three times in Philly and I saw it three times on Broadway. And I would always bring, like I would always go with a different group of people. <laughs> so I felt like they should have sent me like, uh, you know, some tiny portion of the royalty <laughs> as a thank you. But, um, you know, and, and there was something that was so alive about that show. And it's funny now because, you know, sort of in hindsight, I think Tick, Tick, Boom is probably a better show. But there was something about Rent at that time that that was the play, you know, the, the musical that we needed in that moment. Um, I mean, also, you know, something that, that blew my mind in terms of reading, though I saw a production of it that I did not think was as successful uh, but uh, Jose Rivera's play Marisol, um, which, you know, reads on the page is just like absolutely, you know, just like bashes your head out with a brick. I mean, you have this angel who's like packing an Uzi. And I mean, that's just crazy. And, you know, people turning into like a pillar of salt or whatever, you know, like the man with golf club. I mean, like what a name for a character. And, and so... Um, you know, in some ways, I kind of miss seeing shows like that. And I, I was fortunate because I actually voted in L.A.'s Ovation Awards, which was L.A.'s version of the Tonys, for 15 years. And so I, I started in the 2004-2005 season, and I was a voter pretty much up until 2021 when the awards imploded. It was kind of part pandemic and, and part... Um, some other stuff, uh, you know, the, the organization had kind of fallen on um, tough times in terms of staffing and, um, you know, some stuff happened and everything just kind of imploded. But one of the beautiful things is you would get to see, you know, people doing uh, incredible stuff because LA is this, uh, you know, incredibly, at least at the time, this very underrated theater town. I mean, people know Center Theater Group, uh, you know, in the Mark Taper Forum, because that's, we'll say, where angels came from. Um, but, but and you know, and they know the Geffen Playhouse, and they'll know Pasadena Playhouse, but they're all these 99-seat theaters. And people were doing just incredible things with tiny budgets and actors who were basically volunteering. And so, and I've, I've had a couple shows 
out here, I actually wrote a one-man backyard wrestling play called Yard Wars that uh, we did at, uh, at a theater called The Secret Rose in kind of a, a festival there, which was a really great time. Um, and it's a play that I want to come back to because I feel like I, I want to rewrite it. I feel like I know more now. I, I, I know a lot more about backyard wrestling. Also, I just feel like you know that play was written at a certain time and, and that world has changed a little bit because of uh, you know the internet and cell phones and all that kind of stuff but um you know so there was so much vibrant work that you would see uh you know things at, at rogue machine or the road theater company and and it would like every play like i feel like every play i go to i learn something even if it's a bad play like i, th I think that's and that's a really important thing for young writers to remember is um that, that every theater experience, and I mean, maybe I would draw the line at like an element, a bad elementary school show, <laughs> you know, but, but like almost everything, there is something to be gained. And, and, you know, what I find for me is that even when the show, the production itself isn't good, I find myself almost mentally reading the script while I'm watching the show. I feel like I'm seeing the, the play, the text behind the play. And, and sometimes it's really interesting, obviously, to read the show and then see the show and to see how, uh, you know, the production may realize certain things in the text or to see what choices they make and to see, you know, is that something that the author put in or was that, uh, you know, their interpretation of it? Uh, you know, hopefully not an interpretation that, that goes against, you know, what's obviously the author's intention. But, um, you know, I think one of the things that, that I've kind of come to appreciate about productions. And I love seeing shows of mine whenever I can, uh, you know, so if something is nearby, I, I love to go see it. Um, you know, one of my still favorite plays of mine is a play called Rumors of Polar Bears, which is about a group of teens who are surviving in the aftermath of a climate event. And the play is kind of a designer's paradise because, uh, you know, there it's, it has kind of almost a Mad Max energy to it. So it's all kind of costuming choices and, the original one act version, they created the set out of found junk. They like went to, you know, like a salvage yard and, and, and salvaged, <laughs> uh, you know, and there's all kinds of, of lighting stuff. I mean, so like you have all kinds of opportunities. Uh, and I loved, uh, you know, it was Claremont uh, High um, did it uh, this spring. And I loved going out there. I actually had two different casts for it. So I went out and I saw both casts. Uh, do the show. And, and it's so interesting to see those choices. Uh, you know, it's also just really fun to see young actors out there. I, I love, um, you know, just supporting young actors with work. And I also follow a lot of dancers. And I, I kind of would like to do, I did one show that was a commission uh, for Coachella Valley Rep, which was a multimedia piece. It was about the, uh, the work of, there's this amazing glass artist uh, named Lino, uh, Lino Tagliapietra. So he's the guy that Dale Chihuly says, like, this is the guy. Uh, and so they did a whole multimedia thing with Lino. And so I wrote the script uh, for it. But we had uh, original choreography, original dance commissioned for it, and original music commissioned, uh, you know, with people who were like, you know, Tony nominees doing it. And it was, it was amazing uh, to watch that. And so I would love to collab uh, you know, maybe with a dance department sometime and, and sort of see what we could figure out uh, that would that would sort of weave text in 
with dance and, and I have an idea for play, uh, but it literally came to me yesterday and I don't, I don't know enough about it yet, but I'm, I'm kind of eager to explore it and, and maybe see where that goes. I want to, uh, got another couple questions for you. Um, I, I've got to find out where you get your motivation. Like, where do you get, uh, you know, you just mentioned that you, you had an idea yesterday, right? So it sounds like they just kind of come to you whenever, but is there, do you find yourself finding motivation or do you find yourself just, you are a motivated writer and you just have stories to tell? So, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question. So I would, I would divide inspiration from motivation <laughs> because they definitely so inspiration for me to be honest is pretty easy i'm i'm fortunate like at this point i have five or six plays that i want to write um and and sometimes it'll be you know it's kind of like a, what if this happened or what if that um and and you'll you'll have this um you know this this thought that just kind of like pops in your head and sometimes it's usually like a little kernel uh, you know, I do a writing exercise in, in a number of my workshops. It's kind of stolen from uh, Susan Laurie Parks, who did something called the 20 Seeds, I think. And so I usually do five because, you know, I have an hour or 75 minutes or whatever. So I don't have time to do quite that many seeds. But like a, a seed is like a little kernel of an idea. So it could be something as like a backpack lying on the ground or a little boy who's dropped his ice cream cone or where are the scissors? Um true story. I, I keep losing scissors. So finally I bought like three pairs of them and I just place them in strategic locations in the apartment. So they're always there and I try never to move them. Um, so, so the inspiration is the easy part. The motivation comes and goes and, and part of the problem, you know, and again, you know, going back to that idea of, of balance in life is, um, you know, with youth plays, you know, eating up a lot of time. Um, sometimes, you know, especially if I'm putting out fires or, um, you know, getting ready to go to a conference where, you know, we've got to get all these things ordered. And, and you know, my person who usually does those orders is out of town. And so I have to do it. And, and so now I get to the end of the day and I'm, I'm uh, you know, as you may have seen from my Facebook, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a foodie. Um, so I'm, I'm going to cook some meal. And then the question is, you know, here it is, it's eight o'clock. Like, do I really want to write at this point? And the answer usually is no, I am exhausted. And I, you know, want to watch, uh, you know, the great British baking show or something. <laughs> um, and, and so, but what I do is, uh, first off, I always sleep with a pad, uh, next to the bed. And, and I have learned the hard way that if an idea comes to me, I will turn on the light in the middle of the night, no matter what time it is, and I will write it down. Uh, and even if that means, for example, that I will write a whole scene in the middle of the night, I will do that because I have learned from experience that I will not remember any of that in the morning. So, so strike while the iron is hot. The other thing that I'm starting to do, and I, I need to find more friends to do this, is we are basically setting up writing dates. And uh, so my buddy Greg, um, who is, uh, he's actually working on a, um, oh gosh, I guess it would be um, like a, a, almost like a YouTube series. Um, 
I don't know if YouTube, but, but, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, so we'll, we will write together in the same space. So we are sort of together. We're not writing the same things. You know, I'm working on, uh, you know, with our sessions, I've been, uh, I've been working on my superhero piece. Uh, I've been working on cuts to the throne room. Um, I've actually been working on a um, sort of vampire comedy film. Um, you know, just getting the, the outlining together because film is, is so much outlining. Like it's funny with plays, I kind of just do maybe a, a note of some major events and then I kind of let it go. Like with vignette playwriting, I will try to make a note of like what each scene is supposed to be there for, but then that's what I do. With screenwriting, I feel like I do much more extensive uh, pre-writing work. Uh, but, but so we'll each write in, in that space and, you know, we'll go for an hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is. And so for that time, I have somebody else to hold me accountable. And I think that that's the problem. Um, you know, it's not that you're not motivated in a sense, but you can't always overcome everything else. I mean, the best, honestly, when I was doing the most writing was when I was in undergrad because I lived in basically a giant dorm and we called them houses, but they were dorms with dining halls. And we didn't have at that point, you know, the internet was not quite what it is now. We didn't have, uh, you know, cell phones, um, you know, that kind of thing. So I would literally like shut off the ringer on my phone, let it go to the answering machine because we had answering machines back then. And I would write like a 20 page play in a single day. In fact, I would write a screenplay. I would write a hundred-page screenplay in in a week. Like I did that, and I wish, you know, I'm always in awe of of my buddy Don Zolitis. Uh, and obviously, like Don, um, you know, wasn't running a playwriting organization for 17 years and isn't running a publishing company. And and for a while, I was actually doing both of those things for for quite a while, um, you know. And and so he can focus on writing all the time. And and part of me. Um, longs for the days when I can do that. And at some point, maybe I will be able to. Uh, but in the meantime, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's finding that balance because I think that the, it's easy for youth plays to sort of expand into the available space. So I want to get you out. I, I normally get people to give advice and I'm not going to change that up with you uh, because, you know, this is a podcast for educators, so I try to uh, do that advice for either educators or just students, you know, for educators to take back to their students. So you can go about this one of two ways, your response, but for somebody breaking into the into the industry, now there are two sides to this. There are educators that are leaving the classroom or hoping to leave the classroom by producing more content, whether that be you know, acting in shows. And then there are some that are trying to just write plays and get them published. Uh, or you can go the route of somebody trying to break in. That is an 18 year old, um, going down either a similar path that you went or, uh, you know, something a little different, but, um, kind of breaking into the world of playwriting and plays in general. Uh, what type of advice would you be able to give, anyone really don't do it <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> 
Yeah, uh, funny. <laughs> That's good. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, they tell like people who are going and, you know, want to be actors or whatever. They're like, if you can imagine yourself being happy doing anything else, you should probably do that thing. Um, you know, so but I, I think that there's, you know, whether you are uh, a young, you know, writer, um, you know, because the beautiful thing about writing is that you can kind of write at any time. And it's like, I don't see myself ever retiring from writing. Um, so, so whether you are, you know, just coming out of high school or whether you are, uh, you know, an adult who's been in a career and you're, you know, thinking of maybe switching gears a little bit, you know, uh, kind of going on to a second act or a third act, uh, you know, I think that, that some of the advice is, is the same. Um, you know, first off, make sure, obviously, if you're a theater teacher, you're probably seeing a lot of theater and reading a lot of theater, but, but make sure you are and, and, and make sure you're seeing, I would say, vary your diet. The best thing that that happened for me, because when I was writing, you know, reading a lot of Eugene O'Neill, I started to write like Eugene O'Neill, and then I read a lot of Absurdus, and then I wrote like that. And so the more stuff that goes in, because you're kind of trying to find like who you are, and, and that requires sampling a lot of, of who other people are. And, and again, to go back to this idea that the more you see and the more you read and stuff that's out of your comfort zone, um, it is only going to expand your concept of what is possible. And, and it gives you ideas. Like I, as I said, I learn every time I see or read a play and it doesn't have to be some spectacular, you know, Broadway play. I think too often, actually, we get caught up in the spectacle of it all. I, I would actually rather, a lot of the time, and I say this as I'm going to Town this weekend to catch the closing Sunday, it's at the Amundsen, uh, but it's such an amazing show. And, and I think that it's such a theatrical show uh, that I think that is, you know, storytelling of, of the, the highest level. Uh, you know, in Hades Town is, and, and that's kind of part of the thing too, is remember that your job as a playwright is to tell a great story. And however, the method of telling that story, uh, you know, and whether that's with a whole series of vignettes that by the end, we come to a certain understanding of whether it's thematic or, or there's a plot thing going on. It doesn't always have to be plot, but, but like, let's expand our definition of what is possible of what is a play um, so, so I think that that would be the first part of the advice. Um, the second part of the advice, uh, because I've seen writers do this, speaking as a publisher, is don't try to triangulate what you think people want. Nobody knows, really. Uh, you know, we have plays that we accept that we think are going to do really well and kind of tank. Uh, and then we have plays that inexplicably, like we just like, wow, we took a chance on that, but we didn't see that coming. Um, and, and so this idea of trying to um, write because you think this will be popular, it may not be. Like your first job is, is just to write a great show and to tell a great story. Now, obviously, if you're writing for the school market and you write a play that's got 11 men and one woman, uh, good luck with that. Uh, there are some boys schools out there that work with coordinate schools, but like that's your market. Um, so it, it's not to say go in blind. Uh, and, and, and maybe I guess as the advice continues, it's like, and another thing and another thing, but, but understand that, that playwriting, while it is an art form, it is also a business. And, 
people often, and it's one of the reasons why I love sometimes doing, uh, I do a workshop called Playwriting As You Like It, and I encourage people to ask questions about the business, like how to get published and, and things like that. Um, because understanding the business and that you're functioning in a business is really important. Because otherwise, if you just write a great play, it can be like that tree falling in the forest and nobody was there to hear it. And so it's important to understand what is that journey going to be like. Uh, as a student, I don't think that you have to study playwriting in a, an organized program in university, but I do think it's helpful to take a class or two. Uh, learn what it is to write plays. Uh, as a teacher, I would say, uh, don't be afraid to teach playwriting in your class, even if you don't feel qualified to do it. And I think that playwriting is one of those cases where so many people, you know, if you're a theater teacher, you had lots of acting classes, you had directing classes, you, uh, you know, know how to take apart a, you know, light blindfolded uh, <laughs> with your pinkies or something, but you may feel really uncomfortable teaching playwriting because you feel like you're supposed to be the expert and you don't feel very expert. And, and so my advice to you as a teacher there is you don't have to be the expert. You are sort of leading the expedition, but you are all going into uncharted territory together and, and you can get there um, together. And then, you know, obviously there are resources out there to, to help you with that, whether that's somebody like me or Don or, uh, you know, a playwriting book or something, but, but don't be afraid just because it's uncomfortable because, you know, you've got all those different students in there and some of them, the stage is their path, like they want to be on stage and, and that's their thing. And somebody else wants to design and somebody else is like, wow, I could move these actors around and I could talk to them and get a great performance out of them. And somebody else may be dying to write and they don't know that yet. And, and so you might be that person in the same way that Tom Williams, uh, you know, said to me, you should try writing a play. And that's the reason I did was because of that teacher in my junior year of high school. Otherwise, I don't know that I ever would have done that. And he was the one who kind of helped make that happen on stage. I think that was actually the first student written play that was done at my high school. At least that's the, the story that I've been told. Um, but, but so uh, why not? I think we should be asking ourselves why not more often in the same way, you know, when I was a student in college and, and nobody was telling us no. So, you know, like, let's not tell people no, let's say, go write that play. And, and it might not be very good <laughs> and that's okay. A lot of my plays, like, and, and that I think is the other thing to remember is if you have not written plays, like your first X number of plays will probably be terrible. Right. And maybe you'll write a good one. I've, uh, adjudicated playwriting at Florida Thespians for, I don't know, probably like half a dozen years now. And some of these students, I am amazed at what they write because they're much better than anything I wrote when I was their age. And, and I'm in touch with a few of them still. And I'm just like, wow, like you are so good. Like these could be, and we actually have, I mean, we have a youth plays, we have a young playwrights competition and um, their plays. I mean, one play, uh, the Exceptional Childhood Center, uh, you know, Dylan Schifrin wrote that. I think he was probably 16, 
when he wrote that. And you wouldn't know that it wasn't a play written by an adult. I mean, Dylan ended up going to Yale. He's, he's kind of a genius, but um, you know, that's like, you don't know who is lurking in your classroom. And when they discover that passion, they may write something that just kind of like melts your face. Maybe this is the last piece of advice to, to leave with is once you write it, you need to get it you know, get it read, get it up on its feet, because you learn so much more seeing that show. It's also incredibly addictive to be in that dark theater, uh, watching the audience watch the play. And that's, you learn so much about a play by watching the audience respond to it. You actually, you know, you see where people are reading their programs or shifting around in their seats, where they're leaning forward, all that stuff. It's so important. But, but, like in order to be a playwright, I mean, you're a playwright because you say, I'm going to write plays, but now get those plays up there because that will help you move to the next level. Minor wisdom.